Melanie, are you there? Good morning, everyone. Melanie C. here. Another week closer to convention 2017. 82 days, people. A vision for you. A simple virtual meeting studying the big book for recovery is coming together live. It's been two years since many of us have seen one another. And because of the power that we have found in the big book, we have continued to be recovered. So it's high time for convention again. So many more fellows to meet eye to eye. Wouldn't you say? We get how important it is to come together, and we would not miss it for anything. So how about you? Your first time at convention, you're going to be in for an amazing power. Think about it. It's the biggest recovery overnighter ever. Spot the recovery and the love that this fellowship has to offer, and oh my, the recovery. It's contagious. Just saying. Convention 2017, the power of the big book, your weekend, yep, your weekend of inspiration, education, motivation, and fellowship. September 15th through the 17th, 2017, at the Marriott Hotel in northern New Jersey, located quite near the tarmac at the Liberty International Airport. You can roll off your plane right into the hotel. For details convention, all of the details convention, check out our website at www.avisionforyou.info. We are looking forward to meeting you there. A Vision for You is a fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. And thank you, everyone. Now back to the special reason that we have come together for this next couple of hours, Visions Special Edition. And back over to you, Leah. Thank you, Melanie. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 25th, 2017. The share IDs for Friday, June 23rd, are the 7 a.m. Eastern Meeting, 10082, and the 10 a.m. Eastern Meeting, 10083. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Easier, Softer Way. For members of 12-step fellowships, such as Overeaters Anonymous, the steps serve a very specific purpose. According to AA co-founder Bill Wilson, the 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. In other words, the 12 steps can keep us, as compulsive overeaters, abstinent and happy. OA members who abstain from all binge foods and work all 12 steps do undergo a spiritual awakening. There's no doubt about it. That's how the program works. We are changed in the way we think, the way we feel, and especially in the way we behave. We experience a new state of consciousness and being, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The big book speaks of a transformation stemming from access to a source of strength, a higher power deep down within us. The results of a spiritual awakening are dramatic. 
although they may take place over a long period of time. They include changed perceptions, removal of character defects, new attitudes and behavior, all a result of submitting to a simple process, a specific path known as the 12 Steps. Joining us today is Robin B., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Robin has been dedicated to trudging the 12-step path, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with everyone today. And welcome to the line, Robin B. Thank you, Leah. Hi, everybody. I'm Robin B., and I am a compulsive overeater. I live in Minnesota, so I'm in the central time zone. I have been a member of OA for 26 years. I spent the first 10 years of uh, my experience in OA with one foot in and one foot out. And then on June 14, 2001, I surrendered to an OA program that's big book based. And things started happening for me in a, in a dramatic way. Um, of course, that's the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm talking about. Uh, I started working the program the way it was laid out in the big book. And the first part of that was following a food plan for me and working on a daily basis with the sponsor, which I had not done in that first 10 years. Um, I reached my maintenance weight after a year and a half, and I have been maintaining that weight now for 14 years. I just had a 16-year anniversary last week. So I was at at a meeting a short time ago, and there was a speaker and she had one little sentence in her talk that really got me thinking. Uh, We had newcomers, a few newcomers in the room and she was speaking directly to them. And she said, after, you know, after going through what we do, what she does with her program, she said, this may look hard. And later on in her talk, she said that somebody had said, this is so hard. And I mean, she, it was a great talk. And she really spoke directly to the newcomers, and that was wonderful. But those words really stuck with me because the minute she said it, my first thought was, boy, I will tell you what hard really looks like. When I was in OA for those 10 years, I had been trying so hard to find a way to um, discard the things about compulsive overeating that hurt me and to keep the things that I liked. You know, there were certain foods that I liked that I just refused to give up. Um, there were certain behaviors that, that, you know, eased me, eating in front of the TV, you know, things like um, eating late at night, but also, you know, personality things, ways of acting out with people that, that brought me comfort and maybe were, were, in, were habits, I guess I would have to say. And those are things that I did not want to let go of. But when I started reading and studying from the big book, I kind of felt exposed when I read um, some words, and they were on page 58 in the third edition. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. I'd been trying to find that easier, softer way all of those years that I was in OA those first 10 years. But on that day, June 14th, 2001, um, I was finally willing to go to any length because I could see that what you recovered compulsive overeaters had was so much better than what I had. And what that meant to me was that I was willing to do 
what I assumed would be the hard stuff. So here, sometime later, I'm still abstinent. I abstinent. I've had a lot of different experiences in that time. Um, but looking back over this time, I think I can truly define what hard is. Hard is waking up in the morning knowing that no matter what I do, no matter how much I hate it, I will be binging by noon. Hard is wearing maternity clothes at my baby's first birthday party. Hard is going for a walk with my family and not being able to keep up and not, not being able to admit to them that I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to die because I can't keep up. Not being willing to admit to them that um, they need to slow down or I will have to sit it out. Not being willing to say, I will wait here until you come back because that would hurt my pride. You know, hard is seeing the look of annoyance on their faces while I'm walking with them and while I have to keep telling them to slow down and they have to keep slowing down. Hard for me was really a biggie for me was sitting on an airplane seat for three hours, you know, with my muscles cramping because I was trying to hold my body so tight because I didn't want to crowd the person next to me. And then having to go to the restroom and not being willing to get myself out of the seat because I was so pried in having to wait for three hours. And hard was seeing the look on the face of the person as I was walking down the aisle of the airplane and they realized that I was gonna be getting my big body into the seat right next to them. I mean, that's, that's a terrible, embarrassing thing to see the look on somebody's face when you realize that they don't want, they, they don't want you to be sitting next to them because of how big you are. Hard is the loneliness of being out in public. And this happened to me quite a bit. At first I was so afraid that people would be staring at me because of how fat I was. And then I realized that they weren't seeing me at all. People would look at me and they'd look right past me. It was like I wasn't even there filling that space. I was invisible to them. My first meeting was on a really hot night, June 14, 2001. Hard was sticking to that seat because my legs were so sticky from sweat. And hard is sweating like a construction worker. Hard is being sick, so sick after eating enough Chinese food to feed four people. And hard is sharing that anniversary meal with a husband and then being too uncomfortable to be intimate. And even harder than that is the look on his face because he believes that he's the cause of my rejection. And then hard is letting him think that, think that it's him and not me because I'm just, I can't be honest enough to admit how much I hate myself and what I've done to myself again. As if telling him that I just binged and I'm uncomfortable and I'm fat, as if he doesn't already know that. But I can't talk about it. Hard is being on a family outing and watching everyone run and play, my little kids, my husband, and not being able to join them, feeling like I'm 80 years old when I'm 30, looking like I'm 60 years old when I'm 30. Hard is being discovered by my kids while I'm stealing their Halloween candy, their allowance, or the last piece of birthday cake that I promised I'd save for them. So, you know, this is the easier, softer way that I want to hang on to. 
my disease did not want to let go. And it had me convinced that this wasn't so bad. I could live like this a little bit longer. Maybe it'll get better. Nobody was watching what a shambles my life was. I don't know why I was hanging so hard onto this misery and convinced that following a food plan and working the steps would be harder. I, you know, I just, I can't even imagine what was going through my head, except that I think my disease just had such a, a hold on me that there was nothing that could be done about it by my own head. My own sick brain couldn't think my way out of this bag. So what are some of the things my disease tells me are too hard? What am I so afraid of that keeps me from taking, you know, those certain steps that that page 88 refers to, that any length that page 58 re refers to? Okay, there's lie number one, the food fear. That food, following um, a food plan is going to make me miserable. I've never been able to follow a food plan before. Why would this one be much be any different? This one will be just as much of a failure as any other food plan I've tried before. So why even start? Part of that why is I can't survive without fill in the blank, food item, whatever. My favorite binge food, I will die without it. Part of that lie is if I follow a food plan exactly, then maybe I'll become as compulsive about the food plan as I am about the overeating. <laughs> so, you know, a big part of my food fear lie was that it will be devastating when I can't eat my daughter's wedding cake, but you know, she's only 11 years old. It's going to be a while before she gets married, but that's, that's my fear. And that's the lie that keeps me believing that I, this time, this time will work for me. So I happen to be one of the folks who um, I follow a weight and measured food plan and I have for the 16 years. And um, when I started, when I decided that I was going to start following a food plan, you know, I have to admit it looked pretty impossible to me at the time. I, I had a lot of fear about it. But, you know, as I look at it now, I don't know, is it harder to have a first day of abstinence just day one once. I mean, I remember I quit smoking years ago when my when I was pregnant. You know, it was a, a necessity. I had to do it for myself and my baby. And there was a day one, and it was miserable. And I knew I was going to have a day one. But I also knew that if I, if I had the day one and then started smoking again, I'd have to give it up again. I'd have to do it soon. So there'd be another day one. I'd have to go through the agony of day one twice or maybe three times or maybe four times. So is it easier to go through it once? Day one. Get through day one once. Get it out of the way. Feel that discomfort. And then you get to the next day. Or do I want to do this over and over? Do I want to keep having day ones, keep putting myself through that misery, which is harder? Is it harder to um, pull together my healthy, nutritious food, which might require, which does require that I do some work on the side, you know, a little extra chopping, you know, cooking from scratch, planning the food plan for the day, you know, figuring out what I'm going to be eating, which takes maybe five minutes. Is it harder to do that? Or is it harder to only eat at uh, fast food restaurants, only eat in restaurants and then pay with the discomfort and misery afterwards, because I don't feel discomfort and misery when I eat from my healthy food plan. 
But boy, I do. It's like when I eat from those fast food places, all I'm doing is I'm delaying the misery and the discomfort because it's going to happen after I eat like that. My cholesterol is bad. I have heartburn. I have indigestion. Um, You know, I feel greasy. I feel gross. So which is harder? So line number two, the sponsor fear. And this one was terrifying for me. You know, talking to a sponsor every day will be terrifying, was what this fear told me. He or she is going to make me do things I don't want to do. She might laugh at me when I tell her something intimate. You know, uh, I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to annoy her. And I will be bothering her if I call her every single day, which is what I need to do. I need to call my sponsor every day. This doesn't just get fixed and then I go back to being able to do this on my own. No, I need this help every day. I don't want to bother her every day. She might be annoyed with me. That's a fear. If I have to talk to my sponsor every day, I'll be giving away all my freedom. And if I tell her the truth about my relationships, she might make me do amends for things that I've done that I don't want to make amends for because I don't want to admit to that other person that I've harmed them in some way. So these are, you know, these are my sponsor fears. And, you know, so I talk to my sponsor every day and I thought that doing that would, would just paralyze me. Um, when you've been, when you've been um, living in an emotional cave for as long as I was, the idea of being vulnerable and exposed to somebody is excruciating because my disease had me believing that every time I did something that I was ashamed of, it was making me a worse person. So that built layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer until I was a a walking, talking morass of self-pity, self-hate. And I'm gonna have to expose that to my sponsor now. That's very scary. But, okay, so is it harder to allow myself to be seen and to experience real emotions? Or is it harder to keep holding up that mask I've been hiding behind all my life? Is it harder to rejoin the human race or harder to cry myself to sleep at night because I'm so lonely? Is it harder to bother her maybe at 9 p.m. at night because I've got a really urgent issue or a food problem? Or is it harder to run the risk of picking up the food because I haven't called her? So those are some of my sponsor, you know, those are some of the lies that my sponsor fear um, that my brain had me telling me about my sponsor fear. So line number three, there's the honesty issue. You know, if I'm honest with people, they'll leave me because they won't like me anymore. If I'm honest about what I really want, I won't get it. So I have to make it look different. So people will believe that they're giving me something different so that I get what I want. If I'm honest, you know, then I'll be ashamed of the things I've done in thought. And if I'm honest about what I'm going to do, you might stop me. And I want to do whatever it is that I'm going to do. If I'm honest, you'll find out that I've been lying and my pride will be crushed. 
Um, so I had a serious issue with honesty when I came, when I was living in the disease. I had just a terrible issue with honesty, but I called it poetic license. I thought that exaggeration wasn't that big a deal. And I, there was no way I could admit to myself that I was lying. And I think, I'm fairly certain now that mostly I did it because I really wanted people to like me. I think it was a survival instinct almost. But is it harder to admit my dishonesty um, and learn how to laugh at my human nature? Or is it harder to jump through the hoops that my line created? Is it harder to own up to something and leave a relationship that isn't working anymore in a healthy way? Or is it harder to avoid people in the grocery store? I had a a friendship when my kids were little and I realized that this woman wasn't somebody that I wanted to be involved with because of something she was doing with her children. And I had no idea how to break that off in a healthy way. So I just stopped calling her and I stopped answering her phone calls. And then I would be in the grocery store or at the local mall and I'd see her and I would scurry around hiding from her. True story. I would hide behind clothes um, Carol's and behind, you know, if I saw her in one aisle at the grocery store, I'd walk two or three aisles down or I'd leave the store because I was so afraid of seeing her. And, you know, maybe she'd confront me. Wouldn't that be terrible? So is that easier or is that harder than actually getting help figuring out how to leave a relationship in a clean, healthy way and then doing it? And then, I mean, you know, another one is it harder to tell the same truth to everybody or to continue to tell different people different stories because I want them to like me. So I create my, my story about who I am based on what I think they want me to be. And, and this, this was the true story too. I mean, I would go into, if I was in a group, if there was a party of people and three or four of my friends were there, I had no idea how to be because I was a different person with each of them. I couldn't be with all four of them at the same time. I mean, that's pretty, well, it's just plain dishonest. (laughs) So do I want to have the momentary discomfort of um, admitting that I'm imperfect to someone, to a sponsor who has my best interest at heart? Or do I want that um, continuous, relentless discomfort of false pride? So when I get the crazy notion that maybe this program is too hard, my next thought becomes, really? Well, what's the food going to ask me to do? What are my out-of-control character defects going to ask me to do? If you want my opinion, I'm pretty sure that this OA program is the easier, softer way. When I lay it out like that, when I get really honest with myself about what my life was like, then, I mean, a little bit of work here, not a big deal. So recognizing that and letting go of the fight, then it's just time to get busy. And that paragraph on on page 58 that I I referred to earlier, um, it continues. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. So what have I got to lose? What have you got to lose? I personally found that no matter what the discomfort, I always survive. 
every time I have every time survived. Um, and the other thing that I recognize today is that pretty much every, every character defect that I used to feel such shame about, it's really just a character trait that's gone off the right, off the rails. You know, it's like, um, my higher power can use these character defects for good. My higher power can use these character defects by allowing me to, um, you know, to uncover the character traits that are underneath there, to grow them, to water them, to nurture them, and then to use them to help other people. That's the purpose here is to be of maximum service to my higher power. And I know now, too, there are a lot of things I know now that I didn't know before. Um, but food was never my problem. I thought it was my problem. And that if I got it under control, then my life would, you know, magically shape up. <clears throat> but when I put it down, when I actually started, um, you know, when I started living with an abstinent food plan, when food was no longer the only thing that, my brain was occupied with, I found out um, that I'd had problems long before I turned to food as a solution. My spiritual sickness was there really early. And, you know, my inability to live life on life's terms, somewhere in those early years, I decided that I found that I could cut corners on growing up by just numbing out with food. And what happened after that then, of course, because I was doing it with impunity, was I developed a food addiction. And then I had two problems, a food addiction and my inability to, to live life on life's terms. So what happened to me first, what happened to me first when I um, committed to doing this, you know, this new thing, which was living a big book life, um, at that 10 year mark, when I, you know, when I, on June 14th of 2001, I surrendered to this program and with a lot of help from my fellows, my sponsor, um, studying the big book, prayer, meditation, I found my higher power. Nothing else would have happened if I hadn't found my higher power. And I have to admit that didn't happen right away. That was a, definitely a very gradual thing for me. Um, I had to get past the idea that my higher power needed to look like your higher power. Remember, well, I know that my major character defect is people-pleasing. So part of that people-pleasing was that, you know, whatever your higher power looked like, that must be the right one. That's the one I wanted to have. So I would try to adopt that, and it wouldn't work for me. So I'd move on to the next one and then the next one until I started finding that um, I had the courage to define my own higher power and um, nurture that relationship. So that happened and then came to the work. Once I had that establishment or that, you know, relationship established with my higher power, it's like, okay, what's the work? What are the work steps now? And, you know, I, I won't sugarcoat it because um, it wasn't easy for me. But once again, it was easier than what I had been doing. So I was willing to do it. But it, you know, it was pretty prideful and, you know, extremely dishonest. 
and, and most of that was inside of myself too. You know, it, um, I, I was very good at lying to myself and there were times when I was really literally shaking, you know, my voice would shake when I was talking through something on the phone with my sponsor or another fellow. But at the same time, you know, that there was that discomfort, but I wasn't hiding anymore. And that felt so good. So, uh, how is it possible that this, you know, this exercise in humility, how is it possible that this would ever get easy? Well, part of belonging to a fellowship like OA, if you choose to really um, let yourself be seen, is that you get a different perspective on character defects. What I find is that talking to other people about the things that cause them shame and objectively, objectively, because, you know, I'm looking in from the outside. So objectively, I can see that they are their own worst critic. And it teaches you a lot when you can start seeing that. And the way it worked for me was that I would listen to people talk about their issues. And I could hear the shame that they felt about whatever they were talking about. I would feel empathy because I would recognize their pain. And I shouldn't say could. I do. I recognize their pain. I feel it because I also have those painful situations. I also have those same feelings, maybe about different things, maybe about the thing they're talking about, but I feel empathy. But being objective, I can also recognize that um, whatever their actions are, whatever their thoughts are, it doesn't change how I feel about them. I still love and accept them. You know, I'm hearing them work through their discomfort and how they feel about their discomfort and their thoughts that they want to change. And what they're telling me doesn't change my opinion of them. So now it's my turn. And I share my actions or thoughts or deeds, um, things I don't feel about. And I can see that the person I'm sharing with doesn't reject me. In fact, you know, just like me, they've done the same things or have the same feelings. So it's a really positive experience and it's cathartic. And talking through it like that, I can move on on in my day free from whatever was taking up my mind space. Um, And the thing is, this isn't just an anomaly. It recurs. It happens every time that I talk to other people about this stuff or listen to other people about this stuff. So... You know, going through this a number of times, seeing this in action, the the shame and the mistake about character defects is gone because I recognize the other person's, you know, that what they're talking about isn't a big deal to me. It doesn't affect how I feel about them. So I know that they probably feel that way about me. It puts a, um, what's the word for it? Well, I can't think of the word right now, but it it just right sizes, you know, it right sizes how I'm feeling about my own character defects. So, you know, recognizing this about myself, um, why not just get down to business and do it? Nothing is so earth shattering that nothing that I've done is so terrible that anybody's going to throw up or run away. I'm not abandoned because of the things that I've done. So what's the big deal? Why not just get down to dealing with my character defects? And, you know, um, 
I know myself pretty well now and I know what my patterns are. And that's come about because of the talking about these things and being willing to talk about them. So as I get to know myself better, I start being able to pull myself up short before, um, you know, going down a path that gets me in trouble. I actually stop acting out before I get there. So, you know, the inventory process starts on, on page 64 in the big book. And um, some of us have an inventory sheet. For me, it was, it was important to have a streamlined version of it. Um, you know, like a one page process where what I do is I, um, I lay out, um, I lay out what happened. I lay out what my feelings are about what happened. And then I ask myself, okay, where was I selfish, self-centered, dishonest, or fearful? My pattern almost always starts with fear and then moves to dishonesty because of the fear. That's me, personally. I don't know about you. But when you do it enough, you start recognizing that, you know, things kind of unreal in a very specific way, which makes it easier to deal with. So that's what that's what my patterns are. You know, and then so I, I see that. I figure out selfish, self-centered, dishonest, fearful, and then I dig down deeper. And I, I really flesh out what the character defect is. I try to define it as simply as possible, the bare bones of it. And often what I find um, at this stage is that I need to talk about it. Because, and, and I try to find somebody who will listen and won't try to fix me because this stage, I mean, later on, I'm going to be, you know, figuring out if I make, if I need to make an amend and talk to somebody about that. But this stage is the discovery stage. And so what I'm doing is I'm, now this is me. Um, I figure things out as I'm talking about them. Writing sometimes helps too, but for some reason talking about them, maybe that other person will say something that will kind of push me a little bit further. They might ask a little question like, why did you do that? Or, um, you know, what was the purpose of that? Or something like that. You know, so I'm able to push it a little bit further and dig down deeper and deeper. So, okay. This is my experience now. Um, my husband passed away five years ago, and I just recently started dating. So I've been going out with a number of different men because of a, um, you know, a matchmaking online site. And last week I went out with this man for the first time, and we were together for like five hours. We had coffee, and then we had lunch, and we just talked the whole time. And I thought it was going really well. I was looking forward to getting together with him again. But two days later, he wrote me a text and said that he wasn't interested in seeing me again. And this was quite a blow to me. I mean, you know, this was a rejection that I had not expected. It was really very interesting. And um, it took me a few days to work through this one because it was a new experience. I hadn't been through anything like this before. And it took a lot of talking. This was not a 10-minute turnover or turnaround event for me to figure this one. It took me a couple of days. And I realized at the end of it that um, I hadn't seen him at all. I'd been so busy trying to, um, 
trying to get him to see me. I'd been so busy. Whenever he said something, I would look at it as, um, I would look at it and I would think on some level that I wasn't aware of. I would think, how can I relate that to me, what he's saying? How can I, how can I use that to expose more of myself to him? Which meant that I was constantly jumping to a me statement when he would say something about him. And of course, who's going to want to hang out with somebody who's just thinking about themselves? I was selfish. I was self-absorbed. Um, you know, this is what this process does for me. It allows me to take something like that. This just, you know, it, it's, it's very deep. Because in order for me to stay abstinent, in order for me to stay in recovery, I need to be a changed person. I need to be willing to change. And this is the process that, that does that. This is the process that allows us to stay abstinent. It allows us to stay in recovery, to have healthy relationships, to move forward in our lives, to be useful to our higher power, to be useful to fellow man, to be productive in society. This is it right here. So, you know, there's no mystery to it. It's not hard. And there's a lot of help for you. And I say, don't be shy about it. Do it a lot. Do it whenever any little thing comes into your head. And you might find, like I have, that the more you do it, the more ingrained it becomes. You know, um, I, I truly believe that my higher power can use these character defects to good use as they turn into character traits. I've noticed in myself um, that this bad people-pleasing habit, it becomes diplomacy. I do a pretty good job in a group now, um, you know, as, as in listening to other people and thinking about what they believe. I mean, barring that man last weekend. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's become much easier for me to um, think about what the other person needs or wants or what, they're, what, they're, what it is that they're trying to say. And using that to good purpose rather than, as in people-pleasing, trying to manipulate that so that that person will need me or want me or do something for me. Um, the caretaking, I mean, I've always been a caretaker. Well, I was back then. Caretaking becomes caregiving. And my self-pity, that becomes empathy for other people. None of those things is bad. Each of those things can help my fellow man. When I'm working through these things and I start feeling remorseful, I can just learn to ask myself, how, um, how, how can my higher power use this to help others? And that's a really good incentive to be fearless. It also takes the shame out of, out of something that I may have done in the moment. Um, I've had some moments before where I've thought, you know, I did it again. Darn it. When will I learn? You know, it's the old beating myself up about something that it, it was a knee-jerk reaction maybe, something that I jumped to. Well, don't stay there. Don't, don't be stuck in that um, remorse, morbid reflection. Don't stay there. 
learn from it, move on, figure out how to use it, figure out, because, you know, sometimes doing the opposite of something is exactly what I need. I know that when I don't feel like going to a meeting, going to a meeting is exactly what I need. I know that for sure. So there are a lot of other areas where I can use that too when it comes to character defect work. Um, so yeah, you know, drawing this to a close, I just, I, I want to just say again, this is not hard. This is easy, folks. This is the easier, softer way. And I know too that it's, you know, it's really necessary for me because um, I, I cannot put off my character defect work. I can't. It's really, it's a race, a race with time. Because especially in the beginning, I had, oh, I don't know, maybe a month of being in this mm, kind of limbo where I was abstinent and everything was just so cool. It was so wonderful. And then in that second month, I started getting kind of cranky. And there were some things that I kind of needed to, to deal with and take care of. And it, it was important for me to get moving through those things because I did not want to lose my abstinence. On page 66, in closing, I'm going to just say on page 66 in the big book, it says the grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics or compulsive overeaters, these things are poison. In other words, if I don't take care of this stuff, the minute I recognize that I am flirting with disaster, and I stand to lose my abstinence and I may never get that back. And I have watched people who um, have lost their abstinence after a number of years of being in recovery. And coming back is harder than doing it the first time around. It's that first day thing maybe, I don't know. But why go through another first day? Why not just have one and hang in there and do this and never have to go back? And with that, I think I'll finish. Thanks a lot for listening. Thank you very much, Robin, for sharing your personal insights and continued growth as a result of implementing these 12 steps in your life daily. Thank you so much. Robin's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. Stay tuned for that. And we're now going to transition to question and answer segment. If you have a question for Robin, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Any questions out there? Star 1 to unmute. Cynthia C. Cynthia C. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, that, thank you. Thank you all for your service and, and thank you for sharing. That was so good for me to hear this morning. Um, I am starting my eighth step and while doing my inventory, my biggest character defect, which I'm sure is based on fear, is people pleasing. Um, and I didn't realize what a corrosive effect it's had on my life and certainly the lives of people around me. Um, and how it's a, having like an issue at work, and I'm sure it is based on my deep need to please, which has gotten out of control. Um, 
and uh, you know, and and I'm and I'm trying to clean up the mess, I guess. I guess I'm asking you if you could talk a little bit more about how the people pleasing showed up in your life and the ways in which you work the steps to let go of it. Um, you talked about how it's helping you with diplomacy now, but if you could speak a little bit more, I, I would be, that would be helpful to me. Thank you very much. I'll pass. Well, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. That is the thing that has bedeviled me all my life. Um, First of all, I think it's a, for me personally, I think it's a survival instinct. I think I learned very early on that um, if I wanted people to take care of me as a young child, if I wanted people to take care of me, then I needed to get them to like me. And that went way on beyond its usefulness um, to the point where it became more about manipulating other people, where if I... um, and and believe I mean the way I used to think about this was I would make people like me, make them like me, and if I made them like me, then maybe they would um, do something for me. They'd hang out with me. They'd uh, well take care of me emotionally, basically, because I I didn't know how to do it myself. So as I um, as I was doing this character defect work around people pleasing, and I, I have to tell you, it keeps coming up. It's not just a one time and then that's it. Because it's, like you said, it's very corrosive and it, um, it, it you know, it's, it's at the heart of what my, how my personality was built. Um, for me, it's about being honest with myself and recognizing that first of all, recognizing what I'm doing, what it is, what, what am I looking for in that person? You know, how am I putting my needs before theirs? Um, Because I can always feel it. Now, something happens to my face. My face gets tight when I start that kind of, it's a very tight feeling as I'm trying. It's a control issue is what it is. I'm trying to control Um, what's happening. So it's manipulation and control. Um, And the thing about people-pleasing is that, number one, there's, there's recognizing it. Even in all its little nuances, recognizing it. Then there's taking the steps to, um, to stop doing that being aware of it and recognizing when I want something from somebody and I'm getting ready to suck up to them. (laughs) Um, But then the other part of it is that if I'm making amends about that, I need to do that very carefully with a sponsor. Because what happened to me was I went to my sponsor with all of these feelings I was having about how I recognize people now saw me. And because of my people pleasing, which I hadn't ever recognized before. And she pointed out that I wanted to make amends for my feelings, not for my actions and deeds. And that it was really careful to not go down that path because that becomes into a different kind of ego and selfishness. Then it becomes about, look at how terrible I am, which is also putting myself at the center of the universe, right? So, 
you know, I think, I think that that's really important. I mean, it is what it is. We are what we are. This is how, you know, this is what happened because of our disease. We became these people. But you don't have to stay there. And when you work your way out of it, um, just be darn sure you have a sponsor who knows what she's doing. What happened to me was most of my amends in those situations was that I wrote a love letter to people, which I thought was just brilliant. You know, it was an honest letter about um, how I cared about them, not about what I, you know, not how, because I wanted them to like me, but because I honestly cared about them. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's some of the thoughts I have about that. Thank you, Cynthia C. Who else has a question this morning for Robin? Star one to unmute and identify yourself, please. This is Anne Marie M. Hi, my name is Penny C. Anne Marie, Penny C. June S. June S. I didn't catch that last name. Mary Lee, R in Oregon. Mary Lee. Gotcha, Mary Lee. Madam. All right, that's a good group for now. Anne Marie M., go right ahead. Everybody else, please mute. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And, Robin, thank you so much. Um, you know, what I heard was um, it's it's so much easier to stay abstinent than to get abstinent. And the things that we do to be in the disease is so hard and so difficult. So I really appreciate that. And also the continuance of staying in the program, working the program, actively living in the program. So I thank you so much. I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, Step 10 and how you work that in your life. And if you do it um, on, like uh, like on a, um, an outline form or um, how do you go about doing those 10 steps? Thanks. Sure, Anne-Marie. Thanks. Um, I do a 10th step every day. I I talk to my sponsor every day and I tell her what I'm going to be eating the next day and I um, do an assignment from the big book or from some other OA or AA literature and then I do my 10th step. And yes, I do have an outline. Um, I have a piece of paper that I fill out every day. One side is for my food and the other side is my 10th step. And I just take it from um, the big book. I take it from page 64. Is that the right page? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think it's 64. But, yeah, and what I do, let me grab one, and I'll read it to you. I just run down the list, and where was I selfish? No, was I resentful? Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Was I afraid? Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself that should be discussed with another person at once? Was I kind and loving to all? What could I have done better? Was I thinking of myself most of the time, thinking of others, thinking of what I could pack into the stream of life? So I just, I run down that and I write things in. And some days it's super boring because it's, which is what we want, right? You know, I want a day where there was no resentment that at the end of the day sticks out. Um, and, and there are other days when it's chock full because there's, there'll be one issue that I will really need to talk to my sponsor about, or I have worked through it throughout the day by talking to other people, um, or maybe I felt something, I dealt with it right away, and I'm feeling 
victory about that. So, yeah, I do it every day, and I read it to her every day, and it's it's really important to me. This is a really big part of my program because this is how I stay on top of the character defect. I mean, this isn't just me doing this with myself. This is me fleshing it out with another person. Thanks. I was wondering also throughout the day, um, mm-hmm. how do you, like, if you, like you said, if you, something comes up, um, yeah, do you, yeah. Well, how do you I, deal with that? Thanks. Yeah, and I think this is why it's so brilliant that you guys have, you know, that you've got the vision for you fellowship to talk to because that's what I've got. I've got a huge fellowship of people, and a number of those are um, close relationships, and I talk to them every day. I make a few calls every day and I get phone calls in so I mean for somebody like me it's really important that I be doing this always stuff all day because there's no way I'd be able to you know to keep my food in its place if I wasn't doing this all day and um, as I'm having those conversations with people I'm always talking about what just happened and sometimes in the course of that one conversation something gets diffused, so it doesn't even need to go on my inventory. You know, it's like a coworker said this or did this to me, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Um, oh boy, there's my ego again. I wanted her to, you know, I wanted my boss to think that I was better than her, and he didn't. He thought that I was just like her. You know, we're on the same playing field, and he didn't put me above her, and I, you know, aren't I funny? And then I start laughing about it. You know, so so that's a really big part of the process for me, too, is that constant talking to other people about what my day is. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Penny C. Hi, thank you, Leah, and thank you, Robin. I'm Penny C., Recovered Compulsive Reader from the Boston area. And, Robin, I was so excited when uh, Leah introduced <laughs> morning. Um, as you probably might remember, um, you did a member story back, way, way back in May of 2013. And since that day, I've had the mantra that you suggested. And I say it, and uh, people who talk to me probably, you know, may wonder where, where it came from. But God, I'm yours and I trust you. God, I'm yours and I trust you. I say that many, many times a day. And I'm just, uh, to turn it into a question, but also to thank you again, um, I, I, I was thinking as you told the story about the date and, you know, in, in the rejection uh, text, that um, is, are you still, and were you able to say that uh, to yourself and believe it, that, you know, God, I'm yours and I trust you. So thank you, and it was a joy to hear you again. Oh, Penny, hi. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, that is my mantra, too. <clears throat> and I um, I said it a lot in those couple of days because uh, I learned so much about myself from that experience. That was a God moment. You know, it, it, it amazes me how my higher power uses everything that I go through or maybe just how I'm able to interpret it now as a learning experience because I don't spend a lot of time up in my head 
um, feeling sorry for myself that somebody re- rejected me. You know what? I've rejected other guys. So this is my turn. I needed to learn about it. Um, but yeah, and you know that prayer, that's God's prayer. That's not my prayer. And thank you for bringing that up, though. That was a that was a really hard time in my life. And it's fun for me to think now about how um, I'm on this side of it. And that's this program in action. And I'm still abstinent. Thanks, thank Penny. You. Thank you. Thanks, Penny. June S. Hi, Robin. Thank you for all your openness and clarity. I related to so much of what you said. And the, this question is, is really about all that you've said, but I, I want to speak it anyway. Could you speak more to working on the character defects, defects? You know, they're so ingrained in me over so many years, and, and you talked about the race for time. The question is race for time to maintain this abstinence that I have struggled with and, and maintain uh, currently. So that's my sort of sure, June. Discussion. Sure, thanks. Thank you. Thank thanks you for Robin. the question. Um, yeah, it's a race in time with time, definitely. But it's also there's no finish line. There. Um, <laughs> This this is going to be something that I'm doing for the rest of my life, praise God. I'm so thankful that I found this. And I think that that makes a big difference to me, to know that I'm doing the best I can in the moment, that I'm I'm working on the honesty that I can have in the moment. I What I don't see yet, I'm not supposed to see. It's not my time for it. And... Um, I fell into a pattern of um, morbid reflection about how imperfect I was a lot when I started recognizing this stuff. It felt overwhelming to me when I started recognizing it. And um, I think I probably spent two years where I, um, I was beating myself up constantly about what I was discovering about myself. And the message I was getting from people over and over was stop the morbid reflection, that self-centered, that self-absorbed. Stop the morbid reflection. Stop the morbid reflection. And that took a lot of prayer because it's this is such a gradual process. And the idea is that we're doing what we can in the moment. And that's what's going to keep me abstinent. It's the honesty to be able to face what I'm dealing with right here, right now. Because I, you know, I don't get to be, well, number one, I came, when I picked up the big book and started doing this, I was 45 years old. And my mom is 96. That means that at that point in time, I had maybe another 50 years of life. I'm going to, I, you know, it's like I will be doing this for 50 years. It's, it's not just going to get done and then I'm a perfect person. That'll never happen because life is a constantly moving target. You know, my issues are constantly changing and morphing. So it's not about um, becoming character defect free. It's about knowing how to deal with the issues when they come up because they will come up. I live in the world 
And I think once I recognized that, I could stop the morbid reflection because there's no perfection here. This is the earth. This isn't heaven. (laughs) Um, So, you know, using the process as, as the inevitable life issues came up was that that's what my program is today. It's not about being character defect free. Does that answer anything there? Yes, Robin, that answers it a lot. That really helps. I wrote it down. How to deal with the issues when they come up and, and face that and then go on for from yeah. that. So thank you so much, Robin. That was really very helpful. Thank you. Sure, June. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, June. Mary Lee R. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Robin, Leah, everyone on the line. You've answered, I thought I had three questions, and just all three got answered. I really, (laughs) really appreciate And I, too, have been using um, God, I trust you, and I am yours. And thank you. Blessings. Oh, thank you, Marilee. I I would like to add something, um, which is that I remember my first sponsor saying to me, um, we never promised you that you would be, uh, let's see, how did she put this? And I'm probably going to be messing it up anyway. But this was the takeaway that I had from it. We never promised you that your life is going to be perfect. What we promised you is that we would be able to help you deal with imperfect life. And, you know, that's what this is all about. Uh, boy, again, another another little wonderful blessing. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Mary. Mary. Thanks, Mary Lee. Madam, your turn. Star one, unmute. Can you hear me, Leah? I can. Thank you. Hey, thank you for your presentation, Robin B. It was really nice to hear you today. Um, I was questioning, when you deal with a new sponsor, how do you start the process with them, and how do you get started? Hi, Matt. Uh, when I work with a new sponsee, that's a loaded question <laughs> um, because it's a it, it, the program that I works. We have a real um, set process for for working with sponsees. Um, you know, the first thing that I do is I find out if they're really ready. Number one, because we're not all ready. We may think we are, but we're not all ready. It all depends on. You know, how how low have you gone? How surrendered are you willing to be? Um, and, And so my first thing is to work out a food plan with them because without that food plan, without putting food in its place in my world, there's there's not a whole lot that I can do to help myself or to help anybody else. So we work that out. And then once that gets started, um, then we work through a number of days where we're just focusing on the first three steps which is about, of course, um, you know, surrender and um, willingness and faith. So we just work through those and, you know, dealing a lot with what was your hard? You know, what has your life been like? Do you really want to be here? Um, is, is, are your experiences up to this point enough to convince you that you are powerless over this disease? And then 
once we've moved through those, you know, three steps, which usually takes about two months, then we move directly into four, into the fourth step. And w- with that, there's this this process of, um, you know, laying out the character defects because that's a really hard thing for folks to learn who are brand new is how to really identify and I don't know if you're like me, but before I came into how or into OA, I was so confused about how to unwind my character defects because it felt to me like they were all glued together. It was like this chunk of junk. And so to have a really um, specific way of getting down to causes and conditions really helped me. And that was so it was imperative for me to be working with a sponsor at that point in time. And we we worked it out. You know, I would take the time or I would and I do this with my sponsees now. I have them um, tell me who, you know, what their different um, issues are. And then I suggest that they take out one of these sheets of paper where, you know, there's a process for, you know, here's who I'm resentful towards. Um, here's what they did, here's what I did, this was the event. Um, Okay, so what was I resentful about? What was I fearful about? You know, uh, what was I self-absorbed about? What was I self-centered about? And then, as in the big book, there's the process of um, praying about it. And so from there, we move on through the steps of, um, you know, letting it go, turning it over, trusting a higher power, and then get to the amend, which as a sponsor, that's another really important part of the job. Because in early recovery, we're not capable of deciding how we should make an amend. There's a good chance that, that I mean, this is true for me. If I had been left on my own to make an amend or to even figure out what an amend should be, early on, I would have really messed up because I would have still been working out of my character defects. I would have been doing it in order to get that other person to like me still. You know, um, I did this. I hate telling you that I did it. I still want you to love me. Um, you know, so it, it, to have a sponsor work with me on that was really important. So that's a big deal as a sponsor that I do with my sponsees. So um, that's the beginning process, you know, working through those steps the first time. But once again, it's a continuous process. You know, this isn't probably the last time it's going to happen. As a new issue comes up, maybe a year down the road, we pull out the sheet and we go through that fourth step. And we, you know, or we go, you know, we go through the different steps again and work through it. Now, living in the program is steps 10 through 12. You know, that, that's where I live. Because I can work through my own character defects really quickly in the 10th the step, and then let it go, pray about it, be of service. But, yeah, so did that answer your questions, Matt? Yes, it did. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Matt. Who else has a question this morning for Rob, and you'll need to press star 1 to unmute to identify yourself. Martha S. Martha S. Anyone else? 
perhaps this will be our final invitation for questions. Mary A. Mary A. Anyone else? Carmela C. Carmela C. Star one to unmute if you have a question you're swirling in your mind you'd like to pose. Going once. <laughs> Twice. Sara K. Is that Sarah K? T like Tom. Tara. Got it. Tara K. Okay. All right. Excellent. Martha S., everybody else mute, please, and Martha S., you're up first. Thanks. Yes, good morning. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Robin. I really, really got a lot out of your share. Thank you so much. This is Martha S., recovered compulsive eater in upstate New York. Um, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit more about what your daily spiritual program looks like. Um, if if our sponsor's not our higher power and the people we're calling to share our defects with are not our higher power, although we may hear our higher power speak to them, can you talk a little bit more about um, what prayer looks like for you throughout the day um, if you're doing, you know, 10 steps as your defects come up throughout the day or what your morning routine looks like? Thank you very much. Hi, Martha. Um, my my uh, spiritual connection is very organic these days. Um, in the beginning, it was much more defined in that I had a set time that I sat down and prayed and meditated. And now a lot of the time, well, I'm in prayer most of the day. And I don't know how that happened, except that it just became a habit for me. And I think um, I think it started when my husband passed away five years ago. It, it's really surprising how when you go through something hard like that, and there's no person on earth who can help you, and the only help there is is from a higher power, it, it's really surprising how... A person's faith can grow, and so so I consider myself very blessed that I went through that experience and came out of it with such deep faith. And what it means is that I have I I feel a lot of the time like I have constant contact with my higher power, but that was not true for my first ten years. In I mean, my ten year my first ten years in active recovery from 2001 to the day my husband died on 2012 in 2012. I wouldn't say that. In those years, it had to be more um, structured. It it was more, um, I don't think I ever really hit the floor on my knees, except a few times when, when I was so miserable that I needed to get as low as I could to talk to my God. Um, but it, I've always prayed and meditated I have a specific chair that I sit in, in my bedroom, 
and I close my eyes and um, I quiet my mind and I just go to God. Now, I've always had a faith in a higher power, um, but before I found the big book, my higher power looked suspiciously like an old man with the white beard, you know, and there was very little there there for me. It was more about people pleasing. Once again, it was about doing what everybody else was doing. Um, But when I came into program, when I became abstinent, I started noticing around me that people were having these miraculous events take place. I mean, I could see, I, I could see them when they walked in and how, ridiculously miserable they were and I could see a week later that they were open and they were listening and they were reachable and that felt to me that that wasn't human based thing a human being cannot do that a psychiatrist can't do that it it felt very um, grace-filled and spiritual to me so that's when I started recognize that there was something more than a big man in the sky. You know, for me, I started defining what my higher power was. And it did take place in that meeting room and through those people because I could see my higher power in action through them. Um, and when I, when I started recognizing that in them, and I started noticing it in myself too, that I was feeling more free and I was more able to do things and be considerate of other, of other people in ways that I hadn't before. I, I just think it's very personal. You have no idea what your higher power is going to send your way that will soften you up. Um, I, I think that sometimes the best we can do is pray for willingness to have that personal relationship with a higher power and to not be... Um, confined by uh, to not be confined by our character defects when it comes to defining our higher power. Did I answer any questions there? Yeah, you did. Thank you so much, Robin. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks, Martha. Yes, thank you, Martha. Mary A., your turn. Star 1 to unmute. So thank you both for your service. My question is, would you kindly provide us with an example of one of your fear inventories? Hi, Mary. I'll try. Uh, let me think about this. Give me a moment. Well, first of all, like I said, pretty much everything is rooted in fear for me. So it usually starts out with something like, um, I mean, I don't always know that I'm feeling fearful about something. Usually I'll write something down, like, let me, let me see if I can come up with something that happened recently. Okay, so I've I'm I've been working for about a year and a half now. I've got a job that's pretty technical, and um, I'm 63 years old or 62 years old, and I 
I'm fairly astute at technology, I think. I've been on a computer for many years, but this is really technical. I mean, this is all about numbers and working in different applications and programs. And I'm surrounded by younger people. And they're all really fast and I'm really slow. And um, last week I ran into some trouble. And um, I asked for help and somebody was short with me and snapped at me and I got resentful about that. So I'm writing about that resentment and I realized that I am scared. I'm really afraid of a couple of different things. One is that I'm going to lose my job. One is that they'll think I'm stupid because I have to ask so many questions. One is that because I'm older, I'll never get it. It's not possible. I don't have the ability. One is that early onset Alzheimer's is setting in because I can't retain facts like I used to be able to. Um, And there were a couple of other things that went on in there. But recognizing those fears, I'm trying to think. There was there was a super strong people-pleasing one in there. Oh, the woman I asked help from is a coworker who I have a very I have a fairly close relationship with her as a friend. And this felt to me like it put her in the role of teacher. And which is, you know, for me, it kind of goes back to when I was a kid and I thought teachers were, I was lower than teachers, let's just put it that way. So I was afraid that this was going to take away our our healthy relationship that's platonic and, you know, very equal. Um, and I was afraid that she would think less of me because I needed help from her. And so those things had nothing to do with resentment. They were all about fear. And going through that, working through it, I was able then to make a phone call to one of one of the people in my fellowship, which I'm doing frequently. And I was able to start out slowly, you know, and and talk about how I was feeling. And then as this fleshed out, as I was talking to her, um she pointed out a number of things about me that she has seen, not negative, really positive, about my courage and my ability to, um, you know, to to adapt to changes in my life. And I walked away from that conversation realizing that um, my higher power has this and that there is nothing in my world that can be um, changed by another people, another person's opinion of me, unless I choose to let that happen. And by the time I made it back to my desk, I mean, I realized the, part of this job is learning these things and asking questions. And that's what everybody is expect, expected to do. So, you know, it was a full circle thing. And I think it only took about maybe an hour. So does that help at all? Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Mary. All right, Carmela, your turn. Did you say Tara? Carmela? Hi, Babin. Thank you so much for your service. I 
Unfortunately, I, I logged in very late because something came up this morning. I wasn't able to hear, but from what I heard, a little bit of your, you know, answering those questions, you have such great qualification. I'm very grateful for what I heard. I just wanted Robin's phone number. That was my question. Okay, Carmela, that's going to be provided at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for a okay. few minutes, okay? And we'll Very get that good. to Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Of course, of course. Thanks, Carmela. Tara Kay, your turn. Hi. Thank you for your um, wonderful testimony. And um, I wondered if you would say again about the 10th step all during the day where it says, you know, we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, and we ask God at once, you know, to remove it and discuss it immediately with somebody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do you find that's more like, well, if you say if you had a new person, and would you advise them to to just do it at night and let it, you know, just try to remember what happened during the day? I just find that it builds up if I don't get rid of it, you know, kind of. Yeah. Hi, Tara. Um, So, so tell me the question again, would you ask me a question? The question is um, maybe two part, like how do you, when you do your 10th steps sort of during the day and how would you advise a, a newer person, a new, you know, a new a new sponsee who's who's going through the you know <clears throat> got to the tenth step. Um, would you tell them just to do it at night, or would you say, you know, watch for things and and do it as they come up? Yeah, um, I hear you. That's kind of a tough one because um, I'll tell you that when. I was a newcomer when I was new in my first couple of months. There was a heck of a lot going on in my day because of all of this. Um, I really focused only on my program for the first couple of months. So thank God my kids and my family were able to run themselves. Um, so there was so much going on, and I was talking to a lot of people during the day and I think that that's kind of what kept things running, kept things alive until the end of the day. That's the way it worked for me personally. For a newer person that I might be working with, a sponsee, um, I kind of feel the same way, that they've got a lot of work to do. They've got a lot going on. And and I require a lot from them. <laughs> You know, I'm requiring them to talk to people and to, um, you know, to be present in the moment as best they can and, you know, to be following a food plan and to be studying from the big book. So I don't really put a lot of pressure on them about about the 10th step. Um, although, you know, we're going to talk about what their 10th step is at the end of the day, not putting that kind of requirement on them during the day because part of the process of working with a sponsor, I believe, is that 
what we're helping each other do is to learn how to think about these things. So it's like, bring me your issues at the end of the day and we'll start the training, which is, you know, focusing on the positive, focusing on the solution, um, looking at ourselves instead of the other person. So I don't, you know, it, 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 working with somebody even within that first like six months for me is more about um, do the nuts and bolts and bring it to me at the end of the day and we'll talk about it. And then I might ask her questions that help her flesh out the 10th step for herself um, so that she's learning process in that way. Now, this is just my way. Other people do it differently. But this is kind of my way. It's like um, my hope is that I'm teaching her how to look at this whole thing in a different way than she ever has before. And, and then I, you know, what I say to her is, tell me about your phone calls. Have you been fleshing out this stuff with other people? You know, did you get a chance to talk about that issue with somebody else earlier today? And if she says no, or, you know, I didn't want to bother them, I'll say, well, you know, that's a good idea tomorrow. Why don't you find somebody that you can tell about this issue tomorrow? Because I believe that what this process is doing for us is it's right-sizing this stuff. Um, it, it takes the mystery out of these terrible character defects, you know, that we think are just earth shattering. It takes the mystery out of that and it makes them, oh yeah, there it is again. You know, I might as well just deal with it instead of feeling ashamed about it, you know? So it, for me, it becomes more about um, a talking thing and, and learning about how this program um, works in that way. Does that help at all? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, Tara. Oh, okay. Sometimes it gets muted while you're talking. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I love the, the the fact that you're just listening and working with the person, being present with what's happening exactly instead of being, like, you know, caught in the in the dogma and the rule. Right. Well, I don't know. You know, I um, I guess that's an important thing for me. A distinction for me is that um, my program, it, um, I wear my program like a loose cloak. I love that, that thought. In the beginning, it was necessary for me to learn the nuts and bolts of it. And that's what I want to teach somebody else too. Um, but but my 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 uh, focus is to allow this program to carry me through the rest of my life. And if if I feel that there's dogma attached to it, I'm not going to do that. I've got to be able to live. I've got to be able to live this program. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's really important for me. So, okay. Thanks, Tara. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Tara.
Thanks very much. And Robin, thank you again for your beautiful and profound testimony this morning, living these steps, trudging this road consistently. Thank you so much. It was beautiful. The sheer ID. Thank you. The sheer ID for this morning's presentation, 10086. That's 10,086. Let's close from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.